what we're going to do is we're in a brief uh, series that we're calling our Back to Basics. And as we think back to the reality of what we've seen in the book of Acts, uh, that's where we're coming out. So Matthew chapter 4 is where I'd like to start today. And uh, last week what we did was we looked at this concept of being a gospel-saturated people, a gospel-shaped people. It's so important for us to be focused on the gospel. That's why I know for Matt and for our youth staff, when, uh, when, when students graduate, we've gone through all that thought of, oh, let's find a really neat book, or what if we got them something, you know, a, a unique shirt or, or whatever. And we found that nothing is as valuable for our students, especially as they take that next step in their lives, as to be in God's Word. And that's why we just find to give another copy of God's Word something uh, tangible, something they can hold, something they can hold on to. And then to have that then inside that front cover, that gospel reminder that draws them back to the truth about who Jesus is, what, what, you know, what God's done for them, and who they are because of Christ, that will help them to know how they're supposed to live. So that's where all of this really flows out of. So that gospel-saturated people was what we looked at last week. This week we want to look then is, what does it look like? Well, it looks like a learner's posture. The second thing that we saw in the book of Acts was this, this movement of learning. I want to cover that, but I want to pray for us and then jump in here in Matthew uh, chapter 4. So, Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, today. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would come and just open up the eyes of our heart. And as you do that, I pray that we would understand new things about you. But I pray especially that there would be encouragement that would flow into our lives to realize that you didn't choose disciples because they were the best. You chose them because you loved them. And then, because you loved them, and you made them into your sons, you gave your life to them, and you gave them new life, and you transformed them, and used them in more powerful ways than, God, I bet they would ever have hoped or dreamed. And it's not just for Peter and James and John that you would do that. It's for us, too. You continue to call us to be your children. And you continue to stand beside your children. And you continue to empower your children. You give your Holy Spirit to your children. Because you are transforming us and allowing our lives to matter so that we could live such good lives before unbelievers that they would see our good works and they would give glory to you. Because the only answer in the world about how we could live these kind of lives is that someone has to look and say, there must be a great God in heaven. So please work in us and encourage us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I want to kind of just start out with a, a little bit of a, a, of a story. I don't know about in your life, but one of the guys that had a massive impact on my life was my older brother. And part of that was because my older brother had a 1973 Roadrunner that he somehow talked my dad into buying. And when, when he bought this thing for $400, he parked it in the yard in New Jersey. Now, for 10 years, that thing sat in the yard in New Jersey, and almost nothing happened to it. And then you know what happened that was really significant next? Somehow, my brother convinced my dad to go ahead and put it on a trailer and move it from New Jersey to New Hampshire. And you know what happened to it there? Nothing! Okay, so, so there was this car with no front fenders... Uh, it had a hood. It had never run in the 10 years that we owned it. Uh, the only thing that was growing in it that was getting better was its ability to rust. 
But uh, there was this project car. Anybody have, anyone else in their family ever had that kind of project car? Somehow that thing kept going on. But the unique thing that happened was when we were in, when I was in high school, when I moved to New Hampshire, all of a sudden, um, my brother, who was going to school down in Texas, handed me a shop manual. Have you ever seen a shop manual for, you know, a little Plymouth like that? He was about that thick, okay? And in the shop manual, it would literally just tell you how to do whatever you needed to do step by step. It would walk you through. Now, Herb gave that to me and said, hey, look, we need to change out the brakes. And then gave me the shop manual. So I got underneath that thing, jacked it up, and I started changing out brakes for the very first time in my life. I didn't really know what I was doing, but you could literally read through and go one, two, three, four, and follow all the steps. There was another time where Herb said, hey, Mark, the oil pan on that is shot. You've got to pull the oil pan out from underneath the car. We didn't have anything to lift the engine out with, so I had to figure out a sneaky way to be able to do this on this car. The short of the story is this. I learned a ton of important kind of uh, things working on that car. The good story is Herb had the engine rebuilt. We got it all together. We got it running. So in that time that we were in New Hampshire, that car began to run again and actually drove it this time when we moved to Virginia. Uh, We actually drove it from New Hampshire down to Virginia instead of towing it behind the car. But I learned a lot. What I learned was the process of being kind of a disciple. What I would have loved would have been to be at the school where my my brother was at that point. He was down at Laterno College, if you're familiar with it, okay? And uh, they had an automotive society. So it wasn't a fraternity. It was an automotive society. So all they did, since there were very, very, very few women that went to school there, the guys had to find other interests. And so what they did was they worked on their cars. And this group of guys would just come together and they would just work on cars. They literally had an airplane hangar. And they would just go in there and all the guys would kind of work. Instead of a shop manual, which I'm sure they had, what did they have? They had people who could share their lives together. Now, do you feel like these guys probably were on top of all of this? In other words, were these the professionals in their field? No, they were growing. But one guy was known because he was really good with electrical work. Another guy was known because he was really good at working on engines. Another guy could troubleshoot uh, maybe this component of the car uh, when it came to fuel systems or someone else knew how to do these things. These guys came together to rub onto each other's lives. And some of the cars, some of the work that they produced, some of the crazy things that they actually produced as they did this were innovative and new. You know, just to throw it out there, a go-kart that could go about 150, 160 miles an hour. Not kidding, not exaggerating, okay? So uh, that's where some of the things that these guys came up with as they worked together. This was different than a shop manual. This was life on life. We're talking about discipleship. Discipleship flows in both of those things. As we look through the book of Acts... One of the things that you see was a life-on-life discipleship. But I want to go and say, where did that come from? Where did that start? Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, because what I want to do is I want to show you 
uh, Jesus' work on discipleship. It's critical for us today, but I want to just kind of show you this, this, um, this story. The context here, if you understand what's going on just biblically, is in the beginning of Matthew 4, Jesus, at 30 years old, right? He has been in chapter 3, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, There's a significance to his age. Then, immediately after he's baptized, after this significant spiritual work that, that uh, 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 impacts his life, he's immediately called out into the wilderness, and this is where he is tempted by Satan. Okay, He goes through that temptation. That's where we pick up, is now that he's come out of that, we see his key role is to preach and say, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we're going to pick up in verse 18. While he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, we recognize his name, don't we, from the book of Acts, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Look at their response. And, and here's, here's what should be going through our head right now. Imagine this response today. Imagine going out of the waterfront in Portland and you see some guys on a boat and you say to them, follow me because I'm going to make you into a whole new type of fisherman. This next verse is pretty astounding, isn't it, for our culture? I want to explain why it's not astounding for theirs. But it says this, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Deb- Zebedee, and, his bro- and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And what happens? Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So let's just kind of ask this question first. I don't know, if, if uh, Mike Jones decided he was going to go walk along the waterfront down in Portland and he said to somebody, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What do you expect the response would be around our area? Jeff, what do you think somebody would say? Yeah, he's not allowed to say those words in church, okay, right? So, so let's draw it this way. Say you're at Verizon. And someone walks in there and they see your coworkers and they say, hey, leave your phones and follow me. I'm going to make you into salesman for Jesus. That may, might be a little more willing, depending on how commissions are going that day, right? Do you, do, you, do you kind of see how strange this is? There's a question that should kind of come to our minds because we should sit there and go, what in the world just happened? Why would these guys leave? And follow Jesus. Well, let me give you a little explanation because this is cultural. We're also going to see how it, it, it changes, okay? So let me kind of say this. Um, I was doing some research on, on, on this this week, and uh, one of the quotes that came up was, was this. It says this, at five years old, this was, this was the mindset of that day. We're going to understand, uh, we're going to understand some things. Uh, in the Mishnah, it describes the educational process for young Jewish boys in the first century. And this is what the mission says. It says, at five years old, one is fit for the scripture. At ten years, the Mishnah, 
That's the oral Torah, and that's the interpretation, okay, of the Scriptures. At 13, the, the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud, that's making rabbinic interpretations. At 18, the bride chamber. At 20, pursuing a vocation. And at 30, for authority. In, or, in other words, the ability to teach others. So we've got a couple of time frames in here. Five, what we learn about the educational structure back then was this. The synagogue for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, in the first century, living in Palestine, schools were associated with the local synagogue in the first century. And each community would take on a teacher. And what would they respectfully call that teacher? A rabbi. Now, he did not work at the synagogue. His role was with the school. And his job was also for the education of the village, but he really didn't have, he wasn't that pastoral or, or an elder kind of role inside of there. Children began their study at the age of about four or five um, in Beth Sefer, and that's the elementary school. And most scholars believe that both boys and girls attended classes in the synagogue. And what would they study? Their teaching focused primarily on the Torah. So they would take the law, the first five books of the Bible, and they would read it, and they would write it. Large portions were memorized, and it's believed that many of them would actually memorize the first five books of the Bible before the time they were ten years old. So, that's where all of your education came from. You didn't go to public school. You didn't, you didn't learn, say, through other texts. You learned through the Bible. That was the culture in the Jewish uh, uh, setting where Jesus was born and grew up. Actually, as we describe these, count and catch some of the key descriptors of age in Jesus' life. You're going to see that his ages line up exactly with these things. Okay? You, you can kind of go through and say, ah, oh, this is when Jesus first went to the temple. Ah, this is when Jesus astounded them with his comments. You know, this is when Jesus began to work as a carpenter at 30 years of age. That's when he began his public ministry. Okay, so, so we can see that, that these overlay, right, and, and that these are important to each other. So what I want us to see is at 4 or 5, they would start that kind of study. At 10 years old then, most students, and let's just be honest, in, in that culture, almost every single girl. At 10 years old, they would begin to stay home instead of going to school, and their job was to begin to help the family, and for the boys, they would begin to learn the family trade at that point. And at this point, a boy would participate in his first Passover in Jerusalem. Okay, so remember Jesus going to Jerusalem for Passover there? And um, that's also when Jesus was asking his excellent question for the teachers in the temple at his first Passover. Okay, see that same kind of timing. But there was an exceptional group of students. And if you really showed your promise, if you showed that you were really exceptional, you, probably as a young male, got to continue these types of studies while you're also learning a trade 
and this was Beth Midrash. And this was the secondary school and was also taught by the rabbi of that community. And here, along with these other adults in the town, they studied the prophets and the writings in addition to the Torah. And they began to learn the interpretation of the oral Torah and how to make their own application interpretations, much like a catechism class that we have today. So what happened? You had this split. The guys who were really seemed spiritually strong and, and understanding, they got to continue on. But what was said about the other guys? Well, you're a fisherman now. That, that's your lot. Now these guys knew by studying and by growing and by taking this role as a rabbi that this was, in that culture, the epitome. It was the best. It was the greatest path. This is sort of like, you know, uh, the way that we hold up sports today, right? Because we kind of sit there and go, all right, if my kid can only make that travel soccer team, once they can make it to, to travel to some sort of area kind of thing or that travel hockey team, that proves that they're in a whole different class than the rest of them. They've got a chance to kind of move on. Well, that's what happens here. This is not quite, you know, the NHL yet. This is not quite the, uh, you know, major leagues yet. But they're taking that next step almost to a juniors kind of a program or a farm league kind of program. At 15 years of age, very few of the most outstanding Beth Midrash students sought permission to study with a famous rabbi, often leaving home to travel with him for lengthy periods of time. So do you see what just happened? We've just taken that pool of the ones who were bright and the ones that were growing, and we just sliced it down, and we said, okay, now there's a couple of you at 15. The rest of you, go out and work. The rest of you, you need to do essentially non-spiritual work was kind of the view. You need to do just uh, important work. But these special students, they were recognized. They were honored. They were taken from their home, and they went out, and it was, it was like getting close to making it into the major leagues. Um, so these students had a special name, and uh, the name was Taladim. In Hebrew, it translates to the word disciple. So here you have these exceptional guys, and what would they do? These guys were more than just students. A student wants to know what the teacher knows in order to get the right grade. I want to be able to give back the teacher the right answer, right? I want to be able to complete my class. I want to get my degree done. Um, and I want to do that all while respecting my teacher. But a disciple wants to be like their teacher. They didn't just want to know the answers. They wanted their life to become a reflection of what that teacher is. So their goal was to follow, to walk, to be with, to observe, to listen to, to engage with in every way possible because they wanted their lives to become just like that rabbi. They devoted themselves. They noted everything that he did and everything that he said. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scripture, his student listened and watched and imitated him so that they could become like him. And eventually they would become teachers passing on that lifestyle to their own students, their own disciples. How does that help us understand what happens in this passage? Well, let's look at a couple of things. First of all, what do you have to assume 
about um, Simon or Peter and Andrew and what do you have to saw, you know, uh, decide here about James and John? What were they doing? Easy answer, you can look in the book. They didn't make the cut, right? They didn't make the cut, so what were they doing? They were fishing. They were taking up Dad's work. So if you have these branches that go off here, these guys were not exceptional. And what were they, what was communicated to them? Somebody else gets to be that spiritual. Somebody else gets to be that committed to their faith, but not you. You guys don't make the cut. So here they are in their boat, and they're working, and suddenly the rabbi comes through. And when Jesus comes through and calls to them, he uses the same formula that a rabbi uses when he calls a student to be his disciple. Do you understand why their reaction is so different than what would happen in our Portland waterfront? Because this rabbi has just come and called them to be his disciples. This was an honor. This was a prestigious opportunity. Everyone in that neighborhood would have understood. They would have sat there and said, man, I wish I would gotten called that day. So let's kind of think about it for a second. Why did Jesus call them? Was it because they were the brightest? Was it because they were the best? Was it because they proved from their youth that, that, man, they were smarter, they could memorize faster, they could regurgitate facts better? Was, Was that why he called them? No. And in fact, it must have been a little surprising to them, wasn't it? And yet, did Jesus make a mistake? Not at all. Jesus calls them to be disciples. Now, let's let's look at a couple of things that he says here. And what does he say? He said to them in verse 19, what? And he said to them, so you can look in the book, right? Follow me. What is their assignment? What do we say about a disciple in the way that they would uh, you know, what, what their role was. They wanted to become. They wanted to watch. Did, did he call them just to come listen to classes? No. To live life together with him. It was not unusual for them to leave their job, to leave their community, to leave their comforts, to leave their setting, to do what? To be with Jesus. To follow Him. To watch. How does He interact with people? How does He connect with people? What does Jesus do? How does He answer this? What's His understanding of Scripture on this? And it was their privilege to be able to sit there and think, wow, what is that about? What's He doing here? I want to learn that. I want to grow in that. So their focus was on on Jesus. As we follow as disciples... That really becomes a critical part for us because our critical calling is not just to know what the Bible is, right? It's not just to be able to say, I've memorized this many verses. What's our critical calling if we are called to be disciples? Follow Jesus. What's that? Okay, we're going to make disciples in our long run, but as disciples, what's our key study? 
be like Jesus. Isn't that our goal? Isn't that our purpose? To be like Jesus. To sound like Jesus. How are we going to do that today? Because we're going to have to follow Jesus. What gifts, what tools has He given to us to be able to do that? Okay, He's given us His Word and His Spirit. So how do we learn more? How do we listen to? How do we find out the way that Jesus walked and the way that He talked? And how do we learn these things? We've got to be students of His Word. Right? Isn't really if you take the Gospels... And we continue to read through those and look through those. What are we looking to find out? We're trying to find out, how does Jesus think? What does Jesus do? How does Jesus react? Why? Because I want that in my life. I want to think like He does. I want to give my entire life to discovering what Jesus knew and how Jesus lived and how He depended on the Spirit and how he related to the Father. I want to do the things that Jesus did. I want to be part of what Jesus was. Then we look at the rest of the New Testament, and what do we find? All of that is an understanding. All of that flows out of Jesus. When Paul wrote, his whole purpose was to look back at Jesus, at the life of Jesus, what he knew of Jesus, and to extrapolate that, to sit there and say, okay, well, this is what it looks like, fathers in your marriages. This is what it looks like, kids, when you follow your parents. This is what it looks like when you go to work. These are the theological principles that you've really got to understand if you're going to move forward. So all of Scripture is fixated on Jesus. The whole Old Testament was looking where? To Jesus. And the whole New Testament keeps looking back to Jesus. So one of the great gifts that God's given to us that I'm afraid as a, a people group in North America today that we have kind of given up on or, or that is an easy trade-off is that we don't spend time as disciples looking to find out who Jesus is and what has Jesus done and what has Jesus said is tr- done for me. You know, what, 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 who am I? And then, how am I supposed to live? We've got to be people who love God's Word, who reads God's Word, who enjoy God's Word, who know God's Word, inside and out, memorize God's Word. If we're going to become like Jesus, if we're going to be those disciples that followed Him. The second one was, Vicki said, God also gave us what? His Spirit. How does the Spirit get involved in our discipleship? The Holy Spirit is Jesus present in us. And He empowers and He transforms. He takes our weak movements when we sit there and go, okay, God, I'm going to read Your Word. I want to understand who You are. The Holy Spirit loves that. And He sits there and says, I want to bring power to that. I want to, I want to help you with that. I want to give you insight into that. I want to call to memory the things that you need to know. I want to go ahead and I want to convict you of sin. And I also want to convict you of righteousness. And I want to convict you of judgment. I want to bring all of these things out inside of your life because 
just like Peter and James and John and, and all of the early disciples there, it wasn't because they were so really good and because they were so proficient and because they were so talented that Jesus chose them. What did it mean about them when Jesus chose them? Who is going to transform them? Jesus said, follow me, and who's going to make them into, into fishers of men? Jesus said, I'll do it. What kind of message of hope do you think that gave to them? Have you ever been kind of cut from the team? Have you ever been the one who, you know, you're playing kickball at recess, and there's, you know, say 10 people, and you're the last choice? Have you ever had the spot where you were the one that even you began to believe, you know what? I don't think I add much here. We've all run into that, haven't we? When, when say, Peter and um, Andrew heard Jesus calling to them, what did that say to them? How would you feel if you were in that situation? Yeah, what do you mean, Tom? What, what do you think? Yeah. That's a unique, a powerful, a life-changing event. I mean, when we have these kind of wow moments, go back through your life, those are probably the things that will first come to mind, won't they? This was significant. What did this say to them about their, say, human potential? Instead of that shutdown that sat there and said, well, I guess you can fish. That's about as much as we can hope for. Again, not at all to speak anything negative about fishing. But, but there's that message that gets communicated to us even when we're young. Imagine by that, by 10 years old. Some of us have had by 10 years old, somebody communicated to us that our life was going to just be fairly average and wouldn't amount to much. Imagine that breathing life into this to say, wow, the great rabbi from our region has come and said, I've got spiritual potential. I see something in you. Do you realize that because of Jesus, your adoption in God the Father, to be brought in as a father, as a, as a son or a daughter of Jesus, he said that very same thing to you? Do you realize that your calling mimics this calling? And what that says is that I have something significant that I want to do in and through you. I will make you. So the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and it's working to transform us. You might feel like, I'm not sure I have anything significant spiritually to add, but I beg to differ. And Jesus, more importantly, begs the difference. So I want to call us to just remember that we're called to be these disciples who follow Jesus and we spend time in the Word, we spend time in prayer. Here's the other thing that we just need to understand about the culture back then. When Jesus called them as the rabbi, their job was not just to sit down with a paper and pen or, you know, today, laptop. But, you know, it wasn't just to take notes. 
the way that first century discipleship happened was when Jesus called them in, He would present them with questions, challenges, problems. How would they work to assign those problems? Or or to answer those problems? Thinking out loud, especially in what? Kind of smaller compartments. So the traditional way back then was you would have groups of, say, three. So if you have 12 disciples, how many groups would they have? Four. That's why sometimes you hear Peter, James, and John, right? You hear these kind of names together. Now, what was Jesus' role? Jesus' role was to come up and say, so let's picture like feeding the 5,000. They're at the feeding of the 5,000. Do you ever notice what Jesus does? The disciples look up and go, oh, Jesus, we got like 20,000 people here. Uh, people are getting hungry. You need to send them away. And what does Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. That was such a rabbi thing to say. What were they supposed to do from that point? They would suddenly, Peter, James, and John would pull together and they would sit there and go, I don't know how to answer this. So like Jeff said, they start thinking out loud. What else are they going to do at this point? They're going to begin to pray. They're going to start to think through, okay, what does the Bible say about how we should do this? They're going to kind of bat this idea around. Now, what was their best answer? Jesus, we don't have the money for this. (laughs) That was their best answer. Was Jesus surprised by that? No. All of this was meant to be a faith-expanding kind of an experience for them. But they would work together in these smaller groups to try and answer, to try and wrestle, to deal with the difficulties that were in front of them. Here's why I say that. It wasn't that Peter, James, and John were so excellent that they knew all of the answers. Instead, discipleship looks so often, instead of like hanging out with Jesus where you're like, wow, I've got this, you know, in my mind I always picture this older guy, this older pastor, and he knows how to do everything perfectly. And if I could just follow him, and if I could just look at his life, I can start to picture, okay, what would Pastor Bob do? Some of you guys know that I had a chance to, to be in a mentoring relationship with Pastor Bob Frederick. And, and, you know, you might just think, okay, what would Pastor Bob do? That wasn't the typical setup. They would ask that question about Jesus, but more often what would happen is they would wrestle through these things together, feeling weak, feeling like they're trying to figure it out, feeling like they don't have all the answers, and yet they'd be going through saying, what does the Bible say about this? Let's pray about this. How does this an act of worship? How can we be generous and loving to others they would take these four areas and they would kind of push on those together until they came to some answers and the rabbi would come along and if he saw them struggling he might throw in an idea or he might ask a question if they were headed down the wrong path because the goal was to send them back to get the right learning why because what you discover as you're leaning through these things what you come up with is always what you stick with where what you are lectured on we forget 95% of what happens. That's guaranteed. Have you noticed in your life the times where maybe you've grown the most? It wasn't always the greatest conference where you wrote the most notes. Quite often it was the place where you were pressed the hardest. And you and a few other disciples walked together through that spot and you said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. But you grew together. That was the first century. That's what Jesus called them to. 
So if you look up at your life and you say, hey, as a disciple, I don't have the perfect pastor guy in front of me to tell me how to live and how to do everything. All I got is, I don't know, these couple friends who love Jesus. We're constantly going through, I don't know how to do this parenting thing. We're going through going, I don't know how to do this marriage thing really well. I feel like I fail all the time. That is the context for discipleship. So if you and your spouse ever look at each other and go, what are we doing? If you and uh, you know some, some brothers and sisters in your missional community sit there and go, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to handle this job right now. I don't know how to handle this sickness right now. These are the kind of things, though, that God's working on in our lives. So I want to encourage us on that. Let's just look at uh, one or two other things real quickly here, and we'll wrap this up. Matthew 28. You should all know this passage, I think, or most people are pretty familiar with this. This is called the great what? Commission, the great task, the great job. And what, is, what does Jesus say here? This is at the end of his ministry. We see the disciples being called early on in their ministry. What did we say a disciple's role was? To learn everything from their mentors so that someday, eventually, they would become what? Teachers. They would become rabbis who would pass on their lifestyle to other disciples. Well, here we are, say, three years later in Jesus' life. Jesus has uh, been falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, uh, had an illegal trial, and was murdered, right? He was buried, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised again to newness of life, and he appeared to disciples over a 40-day period where they saw him alive, vindicated that he had been the perfect sacrifice and that he met all of God's demands to be able to pay for our sins as the perfect substitute. Now, 40 days later, we run into Jesus here, and this is what he says. The 11 disciples went to Galilee at verse 16 of of Matthew 28, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some were still doubting. So this is not a perfect group. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. We love those terms, but we know that bottom line, this is as you're going, while you are living life, while you move forward, the verb here is what? Make disciples. Guys, the same way I called you as my disciples, it is your calling to make more disciples. Go therefore, make disciples where? of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's a couple things that we just need to see. First, Jesus says, this is your calling. I discipled you. Your calling is to disciple others. I looked it up real quick today. Over about 250 times in the Gospels, the word disciple is used. It's interesting because in the book of Acts, the term disciple is used about 26 times. After the book of Acts, that term disciple is not used again. Why? 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 On the living out of the mission that Jesus sent them on, do they drop this term? Well, let me just tell you briefly, let's think through what we saw in Acts. The Apostle Paul went first to the who? 
the Jewish people. Who understood this term of disciple? The Jewish culture. Did the rest of the world understand this term? No. So it's interesting. Paul and Peter, as the calling of bringing the gospel to the rest of the world, begin to drop this term. You know what they pick up on instead? Family language. They begin to start using family language instead of this term disciple. In their culture, when they were growing up as good Jewish boys and girls, they completely understood it. But the people that they were starting to move into their lives, the people that were outside of them, they didn't get it. So let's take a look at a couple of these, uh, couple of these kind of terms. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we'll just read a couple of these passages real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses uh, 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul here is writing, and look what he writes to the Corinthians. He says, um, For though you have countless guides in Christ, though you have lots of people who've taught you really important things about Jesus, and they've been really helpful, and they've pointed you in the right direction, look what he says, You do not have many fathers. For I became your what? Your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful, what? Child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. What was Paul's perspective? Do you see the family language in here? What does he call himself? He calls himself a father. How does he relate to Timothy? He relates to him as a son. You know, Timothy is his son. Is Timothy really his son? Just for clarity, no, he's not at all. There's no genetic connection. There's no even adoption in this. But what is he doing? Instead of using this rabbi and disciple kind of terminology, he begins to work through this. Isn't it amazing? Do you think back through your life where you sit there and go, wow, you know what? I have had. I've had many different people who've been great guides in my life. But you know what? There's a specific one or two who've been like a father to me. Their counsel, their touch on my life, they have invested. There's lots of shop manuals out there. Well, I don't know if they're out there many anymore, right? Uh, but there were lots of shop manuals that were printed for 73 Roadrunners that would have taught me how to do this. But who really made the difference? It was that my older brother came alongside and taught me how to do these things. Let's look at a couple others. Uh, you're still in 1 Corinthians, but go over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Just to be this reminder. In fact, um, my naming our kids was something that was very critical. And this passage that we were just in 4, 15 through 17 was the main reason that Mark Jr. became a junior. Because I wanted to say to him, look, you're going to have many guides, but I want to be your father and I want you to imitate me. In, in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Go over to Philippians chapter 4. Please, Philippians chapter 4. And um, verse 9. Look at how Paul speaks to them here. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
So again, is this just a listen to my instructions, do what I say, but don't do what I do kind of a relationship when it comes to discipleship? No, this is that, this is that incredible picture of what it looks like to be a father. This is that incredible picture. For, for good or for bad, for all of your lives, the man that was your dad left an incredible, indelible mark on your life. I hope, I pray that that was positive. And I recognize that for some of you it was not. And I am saddened by that. But what we know should be there, what that calling is, is that a dad, and dad, let's kind of think through this for a second. A dad is a key disciple maker in the home, isn't he? Now, does that only happen with those who decide to be disciple makers? No. What, what team is, are the kids in the family probably going to cheer for if they like sports? Probably the team that dad has, right? Or the ones that don't like sports, where'd they probably come up with that? Dad's really not interested in that at all, right? So, so what we see is that dads are called fathers. On Father's Day, I want to call you to say, Dad, we need to hold that key role as disciple makers. To continue to hold on to this, to say, let me give my life. The challenge should be that I should be able to say to my children, I should be able to say to my wife, I should be able to say to my spiritual brothers and sisters, I want you to follow me. I want you to learn. I've been following Jesus and I want you to learn how to follow Jesus too. And there is nothing that is more important for me. I got to do a funeral yesterday. And um, you know how often we work in some time maybe to share a little bit of a memory. Well, it was interesting because here this grandfather uh, that ties in with the whole, you know, ties in with the Chute Clan and ties in with the Webs and ties in with all those. One of, the, one of the children was sharing a memory, or, or I don't remember if it was a cousin, Ivan, was a cousin. But what he said was, I was having that conversation with John Webb, and he said to me, you know what, I'd like it if each of my kids might be able to go to college and maybe get a better education. He said, but what I'd really like to know is that they know how to follow Jesus. That's the most important thing in my life. Okay, so his cousin was sharing that. He said, I will never forget that conversation. Dad, what's our goal? And, and what are we doing there? Now, maybe you're not a dad yet. Are we learning to follow Jesus now? Or are, is, there, is there a potential that our kids could grow up and learn to love the patriots more than they love Jesus? Is there a potential that, our, that our, our, our family could grow up and say, wow, Dad taught me to be so passionate about 73 Roadrunners. He taught me every single thing about them. He showed me how to do every single thing on this. But they lost sight of Jesus. We are called to make disciples. And let me also just remind us this. Jesus called us to be family. So that means it's not just blood, it's not just biology, is it? That means I'm called to actually sacrifice and give my life 
to speak into other people's lives, to, to work in their lives, to point them to Jesus, not just for my kids. So we talk about this whole key thing of discipleship, and my question, just to wrap it up, is this. Is will we give our whole lives to this? Will we just take this again, this opportunity today to say, Jesus called you, and when he called you, this was what he said was real life. The greatest task. So maybe your child will grow up someday and earn his money or her money in the Pro Golfing Association. But that's not as important as knowing that that child learned how to read God's Word, what Jesus looked like. Success is that our young ones have had someone who discipled and pointed them. Now, where our kids go, let's just release some of that baggage. Some of you have been great disciples. But our children have their own sin natures, don't they? As a disciple, can I follow Jesus well? That's my key question. Do I look like him? Do I sound like him? And do I leave the results to who? Him. Because who takes fishermen and makes them into fishers of men? Jesus does. Let's be disciples who know Jesus. Let's be disciples who share Jesus. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. I want to thank you for the people who've had the biggest impact on our lives. I want to pray for fathers today, especially the fathers who are here today. Like we said, so many would, would choose actually to skip going to church on a Sunday. We know that on Mother's Day, church attendance tends to swell. And on Father's Day, we tend to be down in numbers. But God, I am thankful to look around here today and see so many dads. So many dads who sat there and said, I want to be here with my family because the thing that matters most in my life is Jesus. And we just, we just grow that up in us more and more. Would you cause more and more of us as dads and as moms and as teenagers or as young children to grow up and just love and find out that Jesus is more than enough for us in our lives? Help us to walk as disciples. Help us to listen to you. God, would you ever just let somebody ever look at us and just think, wow, you are a lot like Jesus. There's no greater compliment for us. As your church, that's our goal. That's our hope. We love you. We pray it in your name. Amen.